This episode is sponsored by World History Encyclopedia, one of the top history websites on the internet. I love the fact they're not a wiki. Every article they publish is reviewed by the editorial team, not only for being accurate, but also for being interesting to read. The website is run as a non-profit organization, so you won't be bombarded by annoying ads and is completely free. It's a great site, and don't just take my word for it, they've been recommended by many academic institutions, including Oxford University. Go check them out at worldhistory.org, or follow the link in the episode description. North Korea, the country synonymous in the West with missile launches, cyber attacks, weapons and drug smuggling, all held together by the cult-like dynastic regime of the Kim family. North Korea's nuclear and ballistic missile programs pose a grave threat to the peace and security of the world, and I strongly condemn their reckless action. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. For people within North Korea, the decades-long rule of the Kim regime has been a dystopian nightmare that is still without end. But there are people working to change that. In today's episode, I speak with Sokil Park of the group Liberty in North Korea, an organization that helps smuggle North Korean refugees through a treacherous 3,000-mile route to safety. But their work doesn't end there, as they help these individuals adapt to life in what for them is a strange new world. And as their name implies, Liberty in North Korea's ultimate goal is to bring freedom and justice to everyone within North Korea. The state of North Korea arose from the ashes of World War II, when the Soviets occupied North Korea, and Stalin tasked KGB leader Beria with handpicking a suitable individual to lead the territory. The man he chose was an avowed Korean communist and hitherto unremarkable individual named Kim Il-sung. But to give the new man credibility, a fictitious backstory of his heroic past was created, and very quickly, a personality cult in the mould of the one around Stalin himself and China's Mao Zedong was born. But whereas the personality cults around Stalin and Mao Zedong ended pretty quickly after their deaths, while Kim Il-sung's daily leadership role has since passed to his son and now his grandson, the long-dead Korean ruler is still technically in charge of the country since he's titled as the eternal leader. Through oppression, militarization, and a quasi-religious philosophy titled Jush, the Kim family have remained firmly in control of Korea. Any dissenters are quickly dispatched to a vast network of prison camps, while other communist and totalitarian nations to varying extents have since opened up to the outside world. The Korean regime have adopted an isolationist policy which at times has even caused rifts with its traditional benefactors in Beijing and Moscow. The isolation extends to information, the idea being keep people in ignorance of the outside world, and they'll believe they're living in a paradise. And if you look at the durability of the regime, you could argue their policy has been successful. Nonetheless, limited resources necessitate that even this hermit nation 
has some contacts with the outside world. And with diplomats coming in and out of the country, Korean workers sent as cheap labour to China and Russia, and a small but somewhat lucrative tourism industry. Information is a powerful tool that groups like Liberty in North Korea are using to try and assist those living under this regime. So Kyo, getting people and or information in and out of North Korea has obviously always been tremendously difficult. But your organization have worked with over a thousand people that have managed to escape the country. But aside from the traditional barriers that make life difficult for groups like yours and obviously the people in North Korea, when COVID became a pandemic, I know that because they lacked a proper healthcare infrastructure, North Korea basically shut down its borders entirely, even cutting off imports that they needed from places like China. What kind of impact did that have on your group's work to try and help people in the country? Things have got worse. Things have become significantly more difficult in different ways for North Korean people since the start of the pandemic. And it's not like life was you know, relatively good for North Koreans, average North Koreans, before the pandemic, You know, if you compare to other countries in the region or even you know, internationally. But the North Korean government moved very swiftly and very strongly right at the start of the pandemic. And I think that, you know, when things were kicking off in Wuhan in China, uh, Vietnam and North Korea were the first countries to kind of see a significant threat and close their borders to China. So North Korea closed their border in January 2020. There's been some limited reopening last year but it's still not back to pre-COVID levels. This has resulted in, you know, a lot of North Koreans being stuck out of the country, you know, the relatively small number, but still significant uh, population of North Koreans who have permission to be outside of the country, you know, for business or representing the North Korean government. They were not able to go back home for more than three years in many cases. It, of course, was massively disruptive to the North Korean economy, not just the border shutdown between North Korea and China, but also increased restrictions on movement and trade and so on inside the country led to pronounced shortages of food and basic goods. And we heard you know, multiple credible reports of deaths from starvation happening again in North Korea. And, you know, North Koreans inside the country, comparing, for instance, to the period in the 1990s, you know, sometimes referred to as the arduous march, basically a devastating famine that cost the lives of maybe up to a million people out of a population of around 20 million people at the time. It's not been that bad. I don't think that it could get that bad. But the fact that people were recalling such difficult times and making those kind of comparisons and Kim Jong-un himself actually talked about how difficult it was. Things have become more difficult, but it's difficult to know as much as even we did before. North Korea has always been known as an information black hole. Very difficult to know what's happening inside the country. But even some of the few sources that we did have kind of dried up with the pandemic and the lockdown of any kind of contact or travel with the outside world. For instance... You know, we used to get some information from foreigners who were able to spend time in North Korea. They pretty much all had to come out, apart from, you know, the diplomats of a small number of countries that probably wouldn't share 
information with Western sources anyway. The number of North Koreans who were able to escape from inside North Korea fell down to almost zero. And that's always a very important source of information on what's actually happening in North Korean society. So the information black hole has become even darker. From what I've read, the capital city, Pyongyang, is largely reserved as a place for the government loyalists to live. What I was wondering is, assuming these people have very limited access to the internet, which for most of us is an eye into the outside world, what does that average North Korean person, be it somebody who's part of that elite living in Pyongyang, or rural peasant farmers out in the country, what kind of information do they have and know about the outside world? North Korea is often, I think, reasonably described as the most closed information environment in the world. It's not that, you know, average people have little internet access, it's that they have no internet access. And even for the elites, for instance, I've spoke with former North Korean diplomats, some of whom occasionally defect to other countries, including, of course, coming to South Korea. These are people who are in a class and are trusted so much that they're sent to live abroad and represent the North Korean government from countries all over the world. And of course, they have access to all sorts of information and communication and meeting directly with many different foreigners while they're there. But when they're back in Pyongyang, even those people still do not have internet access. In fact, they don't even have easy access to an email address. So you can imagine what the general situation is, just how tightly controlled communication and access to information through the internet is. Elite students at the top universities, Kim Il-sung University, they may have limited internet access to do some research, but even that is highly supervised, censored, and controlled. Pyongyang, we should note, it's a whole city. It's, you know, two to three million people. And there's a lot of variety there as well. It's not like it's all elite. It's a little bit like saying New York or London. It's not like it's only elites or only, you know, highly privileged people that live in those kind of cities. There's a lot of regional differences as well. Even between different North Korean provinces, there are differences. You know, it tends to be the areas closer to the border with China, in particular in the Northeast, where there's a little bit more contact with the outside world. There's more people that have escaped, especially people that have been able to come to South Korea. Some people are able to maintain contact through especially Chinese mobile phones that are smuggled across the border into North Korea. And then North Korean families can use them to connect to the Chinese network and then be sending voice messages, be sending photographs sometimes even, you know, having direct phone calls. It's very risky, but people do that because it's family on the other side. Also, often they're receiving money through those kind of broker networks as, as well. There's a system of sending remittances from North Korean refugees who resettled in South Korea making money here. It's difficult to overstate how controlled the media and information environment is. However, that's something that has been changing over the last couple of decades. And uh, there have been various changes there, including organic changes just driven by North Korean people themselves and uh, some more intentional outside efforts, 
including from governments directly with radio broadcasts, more indirectly through funding efforts. And then there's, uh, you know, more independent civil society efforts as well, including our organization, Liberty in North Korea. One of the things that we do as well as working with North Korean defectors and North Korean refugees to try and increase change in North Korea. We work to develop content and technology to help more North Korean people have access to a broader range of information and media from the outside world, because that's something that North Korean refugees consistently emphasize. That's something we need to be doing more of in order to help North Korean people inside the country, empower them with information and knowledge, and ultimately in the long term to try and change things inside the country. Obviously, the work that your organization does is very dangerous for the North Korean people and obviously people trying to assist them as well. So without giving away any operational secrets that could compromise anything, how do you, broadly speaking, get information in and out of North Korea? It's become basically impossible in a lot of different ways. But without giving away too much there are different ways of trying to get information into North Korea. Of course, something like radio does not depend so much on physical movement, as long as there are people with radio sets that they can tune to external broadcasts inside the country. Some of them other ways of getting information, and I think, you know, more interesting and probably more effective ways, basically require some movement between China and North Korea. And especially when people are able to make repeated travel visits across that border. Oftentimes, people are taking goods, micro SD cards, different technologies back into the country. That is, like I say, something that's been massively disrupted with order lockdowns from the pandemic. People moving back and forth, sometimes, you know, even the people who are able to travel legally. And then, of course, there is smuggling as well. And so a lot of the, I think, more effective stuff happens overland through people, working with some of the mechanisms and routes and networks that already exist, that North Koreans are already using, and trying to maybe input new material or technologies into those kinds of inflows. Thinking about the lack of information that North Korean people have about the outside world and this relentless propaganda campaign that somehow they're living in this paradise. When you have individuals that you've worked with and your group have worked with who've escaped from North Korea, suddenly they find themselves in Seoul or other modern Western cities. Is it like they're coming out of some mysterious cult and they have no idea and it's this huge culture shock, suddenly realizing that the world they thought they knew isn't real, and suddenly there's this whole other existence. I mean, how difficult is it for these people to adapt to that? It does vary a lot from person to person. You know, I've, I've worked with hundreds of North Korean refugees and you know, interviewed so many as well, and it does depend on things like the age you are when you leave North Korea, your exposure to the outside world, including through, you know, South Korean media and so on, your experiences after leaving North Korea as well. Some people spend time in China before coming to South Korea. Some people are coming directly just straight to, to, to South Korea, maybe, you know, only spending a few days in China, for instance. There's a lot of diversity, but 
I would maybe compare it to rather than leaving a cult. It's a form of migration, right? It's a form of, of, of immigration. You're leaving one very different country to a country which shares some fundamental things. It's very interesting relationship and difference between North and South. It's, it's the same language. It's the same ancestry for most people. There's a lot of base culture and norms and values even. But South Korea has changed so much away from North Korea over the last 50 years or so. Some North Korean friends have described it, I think, in, in the best way as it being a little bit like coming out of a time machine into the future, 50 years into the future or something. The amount of change in South Korea in the last 50 years is more like 100 plus years in terms of the amount of economic change, technological change, political change, even with democratization, amount of cultural change, the absorption of more global culture and you know development of a more modern, outward-looking South Korean culture. It's a huge kind of culture shock. And there's so much to learn, a little bit like going from one very different country, very underdeveloped country to a highly developed country, or yeah, a little bit like coming out of a time machine. A lot of that is maybe having to redo some education, relearn skills. And then there's kind of some cultural things as well in terms of dealing with how South Korean people see North Korean people. What's positive, it can be open, welcoming, warm, but maybe curious and maybe sometimes too curious. When it's negative, prejudice and discriminatory, there are cultural difficulties and differences, even having to form or claim a new identity as well. Are you still North Korean if you live in South Korea now? If you've escaped or defected from North Korea, can you live in South Korea with a North Korean identity? Can you claim a South Korean identity, but then South Koreans may not see you as really South Korean? There's decreasing kind of resonance in a pan-Korean identity, like I'm not North or South, like I'm Korean-Korean, you know, pan-Korean. That's been a challenge for some North Korean friends living here as well. One of the things that I wonder about North Korea is that we know that they only let the most loyal individuals get jobs as diplomats, businessmen and so forth going overseas. But given that the economy is in ruins, these people are going to go to Beijing or wherever and see that people are living much better than they are. Doesn't that make them particularly vulnerable to receiving bribes and becoming corrupt and sharing information about North Korea? or doing things that are not in the interests of the North Korean regime because there's a financial benefit for them, or even the military. I've seen pictures where they juxtapose Kim Jong-un, who looks particularly large, alongside emaciated-looking soldiers. If you're a prison guard, earning very little money, hungry, and somebody comes along and says, hey, I'll give you some money if you let this political prisoner slip out of the country. Isn't there an inherent danger here for North Korea that because they're economy is so dysfunctional that the, on paper most loyal individuals to the regime have an incentive or even a necessity to undermine them and take bribes just to live. I would say that North Korea is one of the most corrupt countries in the world. It has all of the risk factors that contribute to corruption. North Korean government officials 
they are paid very poorly. You know, their official pay is basically not a livable wage. I mean, government officials have talked about colleagues not bothering to pick up their official pay because it's so meaningless. And so people have to make money in some way. So they are trading on their authority or their power, their ability to give permissions to people or to let people get away with things that they could otherwise punish them for. You have a lot of the risk factors, I mean, of course, including basically no accountability. It's not like there's a free press, for instance, in North Korea, where journalists might be able to identify corrupt officials and then they would be punished or something. There's very little deterrence. There's all of the incentives. And so corruption in North Korea, it's not really a bug in the system. It is the system. It's how the North Korean government and how the North Korean economy and system works. It's completely embedded. And this causes problems for central leadership. It means that they can send directives and they can try and implement certain laws and rules. But government officials at the levels where they actually have to implement them, they're listening to that with one ear, but they're also listening to bribe with the other ear. So it means that you can't completely implement your policies or completely effectively crack down on certain practices, including, for instance, illegal contact with the outside world or illegal consumption of South Korean media. Because if people have enough money, then they can do that and bribe their way out of punishment. That doesn't mean that it's a complete free-for-all and we can do anything. For instance, you know, you mentioned the possibility of paying people in relevant organs to smuggle people out of political prison camps. That's something that would be possible. I've heard from North Korean refugees, for instance, that if you had enough money and if you knew the right people, then you could do that. These kind of things are potentially possible. It is a weakness of the North Korean system. And, you know, we have confirmation of that as well because Kim Jong-un in multiple major speeches that he's made in the last decade has highlighted the problem of corruption in the party and in the government. They can't just get a grip of it through effort and by making it a priority because it's so embedded. Government officials just rely on. You would need to basically do open heart surgery on the system itself in order to start making significant progress on corruption in North Korea. So it's a weakness. It contributes to change in North Korea. It's not always a positive for North Korean people, of course. Corruption can be a problem as well as a benefit to North Korean people. It's kind of the grease, if you like, that enables some of the other changes, including economic change, marketization, and information flows, the contacts with the outside world and uh, consumption of foreign media and so on. So it can be part of positive change and empowerment for North Korean people and a weakening of the North Korean government's legitimacy as well as their authority and power. One thing that occurred very recently was that Kim Jong-un went on television in North Korea and said that it was no longer the aim to have a unified Korea. Since inception, it's always been the stated aim of North Korea to have a unified Korea, obviously 
ruled by the Kim family. How significant is this change? This is a really significant change in the ideology and the positioning of Kim Jong-un and his government within their own country and, of course, you know, vis-a-vis South Korea as well. I think that it's not completely out of the blue. There, there has been a trend line of this, but it's a really significant inflection and really significant you know, change in itself, even in that trend line. There's a lot to unpack there, and there will be a lot to be seen in terms of what will be the consequences of this within North Korea, but also you know, in their relations with South Korea and even the way that South Korea positions itself to North Korea, you know, at the political level, but also in the long term, there's already kind of a gradual change of South Korean public opinion about North Korea and about reunification. We're getting to a stage across the whole peninsula where the Koreans who remember the Korean peninsula as one country are literally dying out. Right. I mean, this is, you know, part of my family as well. In my grandparents' generation, basically my, my Korean grandparents and all of their family, they all came from North Korea. Now I basically don't have any more of that generation. And the people that still are in North and South Korea, you know, you're looking at people in their nineties and maybe late eighties, you know. The division of Korea was nineteen forty five. And so to have been a Korean person, you know, especially like somebody who had a conception of what country they lived in. And so you're talking about not like a very small child, you're talking about somebody who's grown up at least a little bit. The idea of Korea as one country, the objective of reunification and these kind of things, the memory of having such a kind of emotional connection to the, to the other career and so on, it is fading out. Now, my understanding from North Korean refugees would be that North Korean society and culture has not changed as much as South Korea on that. I think that South Korea is actually ahead of North Korea in terms of questioning the idea of reunification and so on. So it's actually interesting that Kim Jong-un has moved out ahead of even any South Korean political leader to basically say, come on, who are we kidding? We've been separated for more than 70 years Let's just be separate countries, essentially. Let's let's give up this goal. And there are, of course, caveats. You know, he said that, well, if there was a war, then we might end up taking over the South. There's a strong tendency for that kind of bluster and threat, of course, from North Korea that we've seen for a very long time. The core message is let's be the DPRK as one independent country, and you guys can be the Republic of Korea, People have noted that there's been a change in language as well coming from the North Korean leadership. And then that's been reinforced in these recent speeches as well, where they're kind of recognizing South Korea. You know, in English, it's like the difference between saying South Korea and Republic of Korea. But, you know, even more so, you know, the, the way that they used to describe South Korea was identifying in the language as not a legitimate independent state but now calling it by its official country title. It's a very significant change. Does this indicate confidence or strength or weakness or decrease in confidence? It's a little bit difficult to give a simple answer to that. It's a little bit of both, maybe. 
you need some confidence to make such a significant change. Like I said, it will be interesting to see the effects of this, and it could have unintended effects as well in the long term, especially in terms of you know the way North Koreans think about their own country, what kind of hopes and fears they have for potential political change. The one thing I think that could be a risk to Kim Jong-un would be one thing that really helps Kim Jong-un to cement his power is an idea within the North Korean elite that if the if the system fails, if the top leadership fails, then the whole country could be lost. South Korea could come in and take over everything. The whole of the North Korean elite could fall with Kim Jong-un, which doesn't normally happen in a dictatorship, right? Normally in a dictatorship, even if the top leadership changes, the elite remain there and they, they manage to maintain their positions and their networks and their privileges and influence and so on. And you just kind of have a change at the very top. But the North Korean elite have a somewhat rational fear that collapse of the current political system, the current leadership, could lead to a reunification led by the South. They could all lose their positions of power, privilege, and influence. They might even be killed. Almost like best case scenario is that they lose their jobs and privileges and you know South Koreans come in and take over all the power and economic positions and you get senior government officials that end up being taxi drivers, for instance. If you have a whole elite that fear that kind of scenario, then they're going to hang together and it's going to be a benefit to Kim Jong-un maintaining his power. Now, if they lose that fear, if the idea of unification with South Korea, which also depends, of course, on the attitude and the rhetoric coming from South Korea, which is still kind of pro-reunification, but if that changes in the long term and North Korea becomes just more not half of a nation, but a just kind of more solid, independent nation state, the North Korean elite may have a different calculus on what happens in a post-Kim Jong-un scenario. That could actually be really dangerous for Kim Jong-un. He's clearly done it out of some confidence. He clearly thinks that there's benefits him to do this, to take reunification off the table. But there could be unintended backfiring consequences in the long term as well. So that'll be really interesting to look out for. On my podcast, I deliberately cover a lot of topics that are extremely important that most people have some awareness of, but not a great lot of detail about. And inevitably, I get emails from people saying, hey, that was an amazing episode. How can I help to address that particular situation? It might seem far-fetched for somebody living in Washington or Australia just at home to effect change in North Korea, but your group does have opportunities for people to get involved in some capacity and try to help alleviate the situation. Tell me about that. The name of our organization is Liberty in North Korea. So the first place you know, for people to go and check out our work and how people can be involved is libertyinnorthkorea.org on all of the major social media channels as well. You can find us if you search Liberty in North Korea. In terms of our major areas of work, we help North Korean refugees to make it to safety and freedom in the first place. 
Most people come to South Korea. Some people go to the United States. And that's all funded by donations from people around the world. So that's something that's a very tangible way that people can be involved and make a difference in the lives of individual North Koreans who are trying to not be sent back to North Korea and to actually be able to start a new life with the basic rights and freedoms that a lot of us probably take for granted. We work with North Koreans who have resettled in South Korea or the United States in order to, first of all, provide some early resettlement assistance. And then in the longer term, work with people, especially those who want to contribute to this issue. They want to be an agent of change. They want to contribute to you know this movement of trying to support North Korean people trying to increase the chance of change and opening and ultimately you know, freedom for all North Korean people. We provide scholarships, for instance, for people who are engaged in those kind of activities. We provide English language education. We have different you know, mentorship and different kinds of educational programs to maximize the potential of North Korean refugees or defectors to contribute to progress on this issue. For listeners who may be in South Korea, there are some volunteering opportunities, including in teaching English to North Korean refugees. We mentioned this a little bit, but supporting North Korean people's access to information inside the country through developing tailored content and also technologies, modifying existing technologies or creating new tools that can help North Korean people to more safely and more easily access a broader range of information is really important. That's something that we're engaged with different partners on. And that's also something that people can donate to. It does take significant resources, especially to work on some of these technology projects. And so if people are able to contribute gifts, and especially if people are able to give even a small amount monthly, this is really important, not just for us, but for NGOs working on this issue. And, And frankly, I think NGOs around the world, charities would say that the regular gifts, the monthly gifts, depending on people's financial situations, it could be the price of a cup of coffee. If we had a significant community of people who were giving even a small amount what they can afford each month, then that really contributes to supporting these different ways that we can support North Korean people in in very tangible ways that ultimately we believe can lead to bigger solutions on this. The last thing, you know, beyond volunteering or fundraising and donating, something that everybody can be involved in is we're working with North Korean refugees to try and change the narrative on North Korea. Because as you know, and as as listeners will have seen and maybe even sick of, there's a significant amount of attention on North Korea but it's pretty much all about Kim Jong-un and missiles and nuclear weapons. So it's it's very focused on politics and security. In fact, for instance, if you do Google image search for North Korea, nearly all of the images are Kim Jong-un. And I think that says quite a lot. The North Korean people are hidden behind all of these images of Kim Jong-un and North Korean missiles and so on. And so we need to bring North Korean people to the fore We need to listen to North Korean people's voices and stories. We need to amplify that. People are interested in North Korea. Learn more about North Korea through North Korean people's stories. 
you know, as an organization, we work with people to try and get more North Korean people's insights and perspectives and stories out. We have our, our blog content, our YouTube content. There's North Korean defectors who are doing this independently as well. There are people who've written books. And so if people are interested in North Korea, I think that a really good starting point would be to read books or watch YouTube videos created by or with North Korean refugees themselves, and then to help to kind of change the narrative and bring more attention to this issue by sharing that, by sharing those books, by sharing that in conversation, by sharing it through social media. This is something that we need to do globally in order to mobilize more support for North Korean people. Also to change the way that the international community interacts with and tries to deal with North Korea so that it's again, not just the US president or the South Korean president sitting down with Kim Jong-un or making threats to Kim Jong-un focused all on the security situation, but actually thinking about and looking at North Korean people and this issue in a more holistic way and trying to empower the quiet ongoing changes that have been driven by North Korean people that ultimately I think are really important and fundamental to broader, longer-lasting uh, solutions on the Korean Peninsula. So cool, you've been a great guest, but obviously this is something very important. I really appreciate you shedding more light onto it. In the next episode, we head to my home country, England, and talk about the death of Lady Diana. <laughs>